I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 2nd, 2019, the a bit snitty edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. in New York at CBS Worldwide Headquarters. CBS This Morning's John Dickerson. Hello, John. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good afternoon and good evening. And good night. At Gracious. That was a lot all at once. It was a very Truman show. There is Emily <laughs> Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and the best-selling book, Charged. Emily, where are you? I don't even know what city you're in. What state? I'm in Vermont. You're in Vermont? I am in Heartland, Vermont. In which part of Vermont? Heartland. It's near White River Junction. Not the part where David goes to all the time. The part that I like to come to. Dang. So jealous. Ugh. Wish I was in Vermont. Uh, Say hi to Vermont for me. I will. On this week's show, did Attorney General Bill Barr lie about the Mueller report? And will anything happen if he did? And what will be the upshot of his hearing before the Senate and his no-show before the House? Then, it's Infrastructure Week. The president and the Democrats have a $2 trillion agreement to revamp America's infrastructure. Should expect bridges and tunnels and roads to be getting built probably starting tomorrow morning. Or will there be a roadblock? Or will there be? Or a derailment. Oh, my God. Don, are you going to be like this the whole show? This could be really <laughs> what do you mean? difficult and painful. What do you mean like this? I am in, <laughs> I am in my full, fl- I don't know. full flower. <laughs> exactly. That's my point. <laughs> then should Joe Biden, presidential candidate Joe Biden, be haunted, still punished for his treatment of Anita Hill back in 1991 during the Thomas Hill hearings. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we have a live show coming up Saturday, June 8th. We have an afternoon show, 2 o'clock in New York City at the SVA Theater in Chelsea in Manhattan. You can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. It's going to be part of Slate Day, a full day of live podcasts and and fun. There will be other also live shows from The Waves and Outward and Mom and Dad are fighting, and there's going to be lots of other great stuff happening. So join us by... And can we announce our special guest? We have a special guest. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a colleague of mine at the New York Times Magazine, is going to be joining us. Yes. So there'll be a special guest at our live show on Saturday, June 8th at the SVA Theater in Chelsea. Again, slate.com slash live for tickets. So as we tape on Thursday morning, Bill Barr is not testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. He no-showed this morning because he did not like the rules that Democrats had set up for his testimony. He did, however, show up yesterday on Wednesday before the Senate, where he talked about his encounter with the Mueller report, how he handled it, how he characterized it the way he did, and why he thought Mueller might have been upset about his characterization of it. Uh, this is this this hearing with um, the Senate was the third this year of a really high profile, dramatic congressional hearing. We had Michael Cohen a few months ago. We had Christine Blasey Ford several months before that. The question is whether Barr's testimony will have the same momentary effect of of excitement and 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 <laughs> the same long term and, and the same long term no. impact of nothing. <laughs> there is no such thing of nothing. Exactly. So. Uh, John, let's start with let's start with the bombshell that dropped just before Barr showed up, which was that Robert Mueller had written a letter to Barr criticizing Barr's uh, public summary of Mueller's report. And the news of that that Mueller had written that letter became public just before Barr started to, to went went to the Senate to testify. What what is important, if anything, about that letter? Well, I think it goes uh, right to the heart of the central question about the attorney general. And this is adjacent to, but no longer 
really right in the middle of the impeachment question and the Mueller report. And the central question now about the attorney general is whether he is um, adhering to the standards of the office, which is that you're supposed to um, uh, tell the truth as best you know it. Or if you want to use the FBI standard, you have a duty to be candid or a a duty to candor, which means you don't just tell uh, trimmed, shape-shifted, partial truths, but you uh, say more than you've been asked in a particular moment. The question is, and if truth is at the center of the rule of law, is the attorney general massaging it or not? And uh, that is both true about the content of the Mueller letter and then also true about Barr's characterization of the Mueller letter, whether the summary he had released about his report uh, was incomplete and out of context. There were obviously gaps in the way Barr characterized the Mueller report. There was distance between what he said and what was in the actual report. And then there was distance between what Mueller, what, what Barr said about the Mueller letter and what Mueller said in the actual letter. This is, and so this is in a category different from did Barr make the right choice about obstruction, not obstruction, whether it could be prosecuted or whatever. That's one bucket. But this bucket here is whether the attorney general, when looking at a set of facts, is telling the American people the truth about those set of facts or whether he's massaging them. That's the, those are the questions at issue, I think. This is like the Russian nesting doll to end all Russian nesting dolls. We have an underlying set of events that occurred. Then we had a Mueller who gathers evidence, like actual firsthand or, or, or secondhand, I suppose, when you gather it, evidence about what occurred. Then you have Mueller writing a report to characterize what occurred. Then you have Barr summarizing that report. Then you have Mueller writing a letter taking issue with the summary of that report. Then you have Barr mischaracterizing potentially what it is that Mueller's letter said that was taking issue with Barr's summary of the report that Mueller wrote of the evidence. It is, it is, I feel like I'm in, in, in some state of constant iterative hell. It's like the matrix of iteration. Right. And then just putting it that way, I feel like it's so hard to keep remembering what matters here, right? Like what matters here is the Mueller investigation found significant evidence that um, President Trump could have been found, could have been charged with obstruction of justice. Mueller did not bring those charges himself. Barr then took it upon himself to make the decision not to bring those charges. And Mueller is upset about the three weeks of spin that Barr produced by not simply releasing a full version of the report or Mueller's summaries, which Mueller felt fairly characterized his work. And so the key line in Mueller's letter is this idea that um, the four-page memo that Barr did release these many weeks ago did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of the investigation. And that's the question. It's one about perception and narrative and shaping the public's reaction to the Mueller report and allowing President Trump to claim that he'd been fully exonerated when, in fact, that was not the case. And and just to put a finer point on what Mueller claimed, it was he's he, he, this was not a quibble. He said that the mis that the, what had been allowed to happen with the characterization of his 448 page report created over two years went to the very heart of that entire enterprise and would and and was in danger of destroying it. Yes. So and I think the larger question, too, is can the institutions created to get to the truth in the American system? Are they working towards getting to that truth or are members in that system working to thwart getting at the truth? Exactly. so on some level, the issue is, did the president engage in, in conduct that could be characterized as obstruction of justice? I, I want to go back even further, which is that the purpose of Mueller's report really was to understand the nature of Russian interference in the American yeah. electoral process. And and this is something which I find totally inexcusable from the Republicans. I, I, I do understand the partisan need to protect the president or why they are why they're playing so hard to protect the president from any criminal charges or, and and I, I get that. I, I really understand like why that partisan uh, um, need is so overwhelming for them. I, I think it's totally inexcusable the way in which the the fact that we have a an enemy nation meddling in our electoral system and we have a one party that is doing nothing to try to stop it, to restrain it. That's a tragedy, and we're going to pay a huge price for it. One one of the th- the the qualities, of course, of, of almost any 
bipartisan event these days is that you see these two totally different worldviews presented. And John, yesterday there's the, there's a Democratic worldview, which is that yeah. we've just characterized. The Republican worldview is actually the the problem here is the investigation itself existed, and the investigation itself was was poisoned by by pro Hillary Clinton partisanship and pro Democratic partisanship, and that's the the corruption of our law enforcement bodies, investigating bodies, is what really it should concern us most of all. Do you think that is an an, an honestly felt belief of Republicans, oh, yeah. or it's, that's a pure, that's purely uh, political? Well, I think I think it is an honestly felt belief, but in in advocating for the honestly held belief, the senators who feel it honestly, and I can only speak to Lindsey Graham and Senator Ron Johnson of uh, of Wisconsin, both said things that are either not true or are not part of the fact record in terms of how the FISA warrant uh, that uh, initiated part of the investigation, where it came from, how it was initiated, the role the Steele dossier played in that process, and what Andrew McCabe's role was, A, and then B, what McCabe was um, ultimately sanctioned for, interestingly enough, relative to Barr, McCabe was sanctioned for a lack of candor, which is that FBI standard I was talking about. And uh, and so the question is, if, if you can sanction a, a, an acting FBI director for lack of candor, um, which is to say not telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then shouldn't the attorney general be held to that standard as well? McCabe was nailed for something he did relative to the Hillary Clinton investigation. But when uh, Senator Johnson talks about him, it's it's like he was sanctioned for the work he did on the Trump investigation. Now, look, the texts from Peter Strzok uh, are incredibly damning, and I think it's perfectly uh, reasonable to go after Strzok and ask whether he, given the personal things he said in his texts about the president, uh, influenced his investigation. He's been asked a lot of that stuff in open court and in public testimony. And, you know, you've made strong cases about the the flimsiness of the FISA court uh, before and what's what's required to trigger um, a FISA warrant. So, sure, let's have another look at that. But when you switch the turf, um, when there are still, it seems to me, reasonable questions to wrestle to the ground uh, on the Mueller report, then it loses um, what may have started as a genuine inquiry seems more and more political. Emily, Barr refused to show up today, Thursday, for the House Judiciary hearing into the same matters. He said it was unfair for him to be questioned by... uh, counsel rather than by members themselves, and he didn't like the format, and so he just declined to show up. He's also late uh, responding to a subpoena for documents from the House. This cannot end well. This can't. This this is a bad situation that we find ourselves in, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're having a struggle about Congress's power to merely take testimony and see evidence from the executive branch. This is a kind of tension between the branches, which normally we want them to kind of work it out. And we do think that Congress is supposed to have some kind of oversight here. It seems like the Trump administration is very willing to stonewall and not cooperate and sees that as politically beneficial. You know, I also think that um, Barr was a pretty great and smart witness yesterday. If you're just like grading him versus the senators who are asking questions. Um, If I were him, I wouldn't want to be questioned by a lawyer for sustained questioning over 30 minutes either. I also thought he did a really good job of just cutting Robert Mueller down to size, right? So Mueller has become a kind of mythical figure in American law and politics right now because he has stayed so silent and seemingly above the fray. And Barr made him just sound kind of small, like just the phrase, you know, a bit snitty about the letter is diminishing. And his sort of references to like, well, you know, I don't really know what he's complaining about when I was on the phone with him at all. He was reassuring me there was no problem here. I don't know how credible it is, given that Barr has been mischaracterizing other things that um, Mueller said, and we now know that from Mueller's letter. But it has the effect of kind of pulling Mueller down into the mud with everybody else. And I wonder what Mueller is going to do next, right? I mean, in some ways, he is so the missing voice here, right? Like we need, I feel like we need to hear from him. But his silence has been his biggest asset in some way. It's the only thing that sets him apart. And if I, I have no idea, but he must be struggling with whether to speak up for himself or continue 
to remain aloof and removed. The problem with continuing to be silent is it's like taking all your pieces and going home. Like, <laughs> right? I mean, Barr is not on his team. And he's he's winning the game by characterizing what Mueller is saying and, um, and, and saying, I'm your boss. This was my call to make. Yeah, I, I, there are two, at least two specific instances that would seem to really call out. One is in the characterization of what Mueller, uh, Mueller, the nature of his complaint about the summary. Mueller had pre-written summaries that could have been put out. Barr could have said, this is what he, this is, this is the summary that the special counsel. Instead, Barr chose to put his own summary out. So that's one. The second is the nature of Mueller's complaint. Barr and his people made it sound like Mueller was complaining about the press coverage. No, according to his letter, he was saying that the way it had been, the way that the report had been characterized in the summary uh, and the reaction to that summary was it was threatening to destroy the actual 448-page report. It was framed as if Mueller was kind of like kind of snitty about the press coverage. Uh, and then also, if you remember the press coverage at the time, there were two things. There were the people who focused on the fact the president was claiming total exoneration and the people who were saying, you know, in Barr's letter, it says not exonerated. Those were the two types of stories. So which one was Mueller complaining about in terms of the press coverage? But also then specific with respect to the specific report, there are many, many, many interesting instances. But just one to pick is the president's uh, what what the president was trying to do by getting his lawyer, Don McGahn, to fire the special counsel. Barr characterized it as if the president was just simply suggesting that McGahn go to Rosenstein, who was running heading the investigation at DOJ, and raise the issue of conflicts of interest as if that were as if he had cause to fire Mueller because of the conflicts of interest and that it was only the president asking that those conflicts be examined on kind of merit base, uh, on a merit basis. Um, first of all, will no one rid me of this troublesome pe- uh, priest? Yeah, it's like perfectly. Yeah, but yeah. secondly, <laughs> but, but more to my initial point of this whole ramble is that Mueller is quite explicit in his report. And it says this. This evidence shows that the president was not just seeking an examination of whether conflicts existed, but instead was looking to use asserted conflicts as a way to terminate Mueller. In other words, the report that is at issue here and that is supposed to be the thing from which we don't want to stray because it's so thoroughly put together by everybody's account. The report itself says, no, the president was trying to terminate him. He wasn't really interested in whether these conflicts caused the basis for termination. It was just that the conflicts were a pretext for his actual intent, which was to terminate him. So when the attorney general says something that is at odds with the finding of the thing itself, it does seem that you want to call the guy who put the thing together and say, wait a minute, the attorney general is characterizing your work in this fashion, but your plain language says this. And since we're into now this question of whether the the report was fair, fair, fairly characterized, that, that ranges over the whole entire thing, not just the McGann episode. It's, it's, it's really, it is, it is so who will rid me of this, this troublesome priest. It is, it, it's like, you know, he said, bring me his head on a pike, but it, I didn't mean for, to kill him. I mean, he just meant like to carry the head <laughs> on a pike. I mean, it's, it's just right. ludicrous. The, the claim and is hey, ludicrous. And hey, if he did kill him, he would just find someone yeah. else and put him right in that role because he's dying to have someone else whose head could be on a pike. What, I, Emily, I, I'm also interested in what you make up, or actually both of you. One of the things that seems to be happening is that Barr may well be an honorable man, an honorable public servant, but it's clear that service to this president causes people to take positions which they previously would have found morally repugnant. And we had one such example yesterday where where Barr was asked whether when when a foreign person, a foreign source comes to you promising dirt on an opposing candidate, whether you have any <laughs> obligation to tell the FBI about it. And Barr kind of reluctantly says, I mean, he basically says not really unless it's a foreign intelligence source so that anybody who's not like wearing a sign that says I am a spy for Russia, mm-hmm. you can take their dirt on on a, a competitive candidate and take their interference in the election as being okie dokie. And that is that's a really, really a bad, disaster for campaign finance law. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it really, really narrows the reading of what it means to commit a violation of the law that make, makes it illegal for foreigners to influence American elections. And for the attorney general to pronounce that in his congressional testimony is quite something. I, I, I was thinking, though, David, when you started talking that you were going to mention Jim Comey's amazing yep. screed about precisely the dynamic you just outlined, where I think, I mean, it felt to me like Comey just sat down and typed to try to explain 
explain to himself how Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein, two men who in previous moments Comey has had respect for, have turned into, in Comey's eyes, complete toadies. It was quite a piece to read. I think also you are, you are, let's just think of it from the, from the most self-interested standpoint. You are, as if you're Attorney General Barr, you are putting, you've hooked your entire reputation and how history will remember you. You've hooked it up to President Trump, who at the very, very uh, least we can all agree is a highly unpredictable person and whose mark left on history based on polling right now and the and the rendering of both conservative and um, liberal historians is not towards the upper end of the range. Um, what what principle you're defending makes you want to take that risk? Um, that's something I don't I don't quite um, know. Well, I have to say I had another thought listening yesterday, which was that Barr is really enjoying being in power. He really played up his authority, the way in which he is the boss. And I thought that he was enjoying it. And to me, that was a pretty good explanation. And, you know, if you go back to last summer to the memo he wrote that was intensely critical of Mueller in a pretty ad hominem way, given that he didn't really know how this investigation was being conducted. And yet that letter gives zero benefit of the doubt to Bob Mueller, despite the fact that these people had been friends previously. It is just written in such an aggressive tone. And I remember thinking at the time, like, if you write a letter like that as a lawyer about another lawyer, there, there's got to be some underlying rationale for doing it. And to me, that letter matters much more than this notion of like, oh, these two people, these two men were friends. Why are they sudden? Why is Barr suddenly turning on Mueller? It's like Barr already turned on Mueller. And what he has gotten is to be the attorney general. And you could see him fully embody that role yesterday in a way that he seemed to be taking a lot of satisfaction from. And maybe that's the whole explanation. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today, we're going to talk about the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why and whether it might have caused a surge in teen suicide and whether Netflix deserves some kind of blame or to be held responsible somehow if that is the case. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The president met on Tuesday with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. All smiles. Everyone came out happy and with a $2 trillion infrastructure plan to restore imaginary roads, imaginary railroads, bridges, and imaginary airports to build new imaginary things, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. It is, of course, a running joke, John, that every week is Infrastructure Week. But this was uh, this is another example. This time, Democrats are on board for Infrastructure Week. But what reasons might we have to are think really that, a... that, that this might not become law? Yeah. Well, yeah, our Democrats are really on board for Infrastructure Week. I mean, the the animus towards President Trump is so overwhelming that I just don't, I just can't see any way that um, this passes. Uh, the other reason it's not going to pass is that, I mean, the president has done this on uh, gun safety laws or gun control. He's done it on immigration. He's done it on infrastructure a couple times. He's done it on health care. 
um, where he'll say something in a meeting that just that he has no intention of following through on. You know, if you would imagine a different situation, Donald Trump comes to Washington, everybody's angry at him about the way he ran his campaign. And then because he has no financial obligations to the Republican Party, no ideological obligations to the Republican Party and a super high pain threshold, he could have gone to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and said, infrastructure. I'm not really exercised about the debt and deficit, as we've seen. I'd like to build a bunch of stuff. I like building stuff. And you guys work with me. And then he'll grab a bunch of Republicans who are also psyched to spend a lot of money on stuff that will make them all popular at home. And, oh, by the way, that has this huge economic, uh, long-term economic benefit from um, all the commerce that it allows to flow more smoothly. Uh, And he gets a big honk and win in a way that also, oh, by the way, creates a whole bunch of jobs. And complaining from within his own party, he doesn't care about complaining from the Democrats because they've been complaining for the previous two years of the election, but complaining from within his own party because he's got a high pain threshold and and has no strong allegiances to the Republican Party anyway. Okay, let him whine. I've just created this huge, massive, successful thing. So that could have been done, wasn't done. And in this point, there's just way too much in the funding mechanism that Chuck Schumer wants, which is peeling back some of the corporate uh, tax breaks that are part of the president's signature legislative achievement so far. It just isn't going to happen. He's not going to fund it that way. And if even if the president wanted to, Mitch McConnell um, has said it's a non-starter. Right. I mean, this is, Emily, so crazy making because America's infrastructure is a, an international embarrassment. You just only need to talk to someone who comes to visit the United States from from China or from Europe to to realize how appalling our infrastructure is. It is something which is a only the government can do in general. It is something where the returns are enormous. So well-done infrastructure pays back multiples of the dollar you put in. And yet we are utterly incapable of doing it, even though it's in everyone's interest. It is literally in everyone's interest to do it. And also Trump wants it. Trump loves infrastructure. He loves things you could put his name on. Imagine if we could have you know, Trump highways and Trump bridges and Trump dams all over the country, how great that would be. You know, I would take I would happily take his name on a whole bunch of stuff if we could just get get that stuff built. But we can't do it like there's no will. But don't you think that if Trump really wanted to do this, he would figure out a way to whip his party into shape? I mean, they followed him on down so many other unpopular roads. Why not follow him down? What if they followed him? What is all about grandstanding? They've only followed him down on 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 judges, which they want on taxes, which they want. And on immigration, it's kind of like yeah. not a big deal for them either way. Actually, the Republican yeah. base is sort of more or less with them on immigration in the districts. And on the Mueller investigation, so, so they've I, defended him. I'm not mightily. sure they followed. I'm not sure. Wait, where else have they I'm broken not, with him? Right. Russia, a little tiny bit. Wait, so what I'm saying is I'm not sure that where I'm not sure where Republicans are following him against their our, their current ideological interests. Well, on trade. Well, they're letting. I mean, his trade policy is not a Republican standard policy, and they there have been. I, I don't know. I feel like it's the rare moment where they say boo. And so, if he really wanted to marshal his political capital to browbeat them on this, he would do it. Okay, fair point. Yeah, I feel like infrastructure is the thing that is good for an occasional feel-good press conference. And I kind of blame Pelosi and Schumer for this, too. It's like everyone's happy to pretend that they're about to do something, which is terribly necessary in just the way you outlined. And no one's actually planning to do anything. And it's just a lot of posturing. But what I don't understand is that it's it's one of these rare things, is one of the rare things which is good for the country. It's good for the politicians who do it. There's nothing bad about it. You, if well, you're a politician think- who, if you're a politician who gets something built, you've gotten something built. That is like a tangible accomplishment. Who, what president of the 20th century is is remembered? I mean, FDR and what the New Deal and and uh, and the all the public works of that era built are remembered. I mean, you just go to the Hoover Dam, just go go to any national park, and I can't believe that if you're if you're Trump or if you're Pelosi and Schumer that you don't want that. Um. Yeah, but you have to work together and actually accomplish something. And we don't have a government that does those things. Herbert Hoover's not exactly like rocketing up the presidential uh, assessment charts because he has a dam. I mean, they remember the name of the dam because it's named after him, but it does not necessarily reflect uh, a particular uh, glory on Herbert Hoover's tenure. But um, 
the uh, uh, do they really want to give the president a win in a presidential year? Because given the fact that um, the public attention has the life of a fruit fly, the concern among Democrats is that the president does this thing, says, hey, I'm a bipartisan deal maker. A lot of Republicans who may have voted for him holding their nose because they couldn't possibly vote for Hillary Clinton would say, oh, you know, look, he's finally turned that page we thought he would turn when he came into office and say, look, the next four years, maybe he can get some stuff done. He's He was a businessman. He can get stuff done. And look, this is proof of it. So sure, it was a bumpy year, but man, they were hunting him down over that Russia thing. They found no collusion, no obstruction. And now he's put together this infrastructure deal. This is the guy we thought we were going to get electing. Look, he's turned, he's done it. And we got roads and bridges and on to other great imaginative thing that I'm going to think he can uh, do because he's just done this great deal with the Democrats. That's not in their interest. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Well, you know what? Fuck them. I mean, the country, it matters more that the country gets the stuff built. And I I honestly think if you are if you're a Democratic politician and you you do not act to, you know, you try to preserve health care, you try to extend child care, you try to raise the minimum wage, you try to do all those things. But the infrastructure is one thing that you believe in. And if you decide I'm going to forego this opportunity because I'm I like I'm so nihilistic about politics because all I want is the is the win in 2020. I don't I don't well, want to hear that. It's just not I think that's a that's an incredibly cynical thing to do and I understand that it's a that we're in a terrible political situation but part of the terrible political situation is that both parties have are but particularly the Republican party consistently acts purely for political to win the next political fight and not to actually accomplish the things that they say they want to accomplish. This is something the Democrats have said for generations that they want to accomplish. Uh, is it I, worth Trump getting reelected? You know, that's a that's a that's a Weasley hypothetical. It's not you. It doesn't. Well, it's, you can't there is say that you pe- election. That's why I asked. <laughs> you it. can't. I was trying. To no, if you if you no, say if you if you knew easily. if you knew as a, mal- a matter of like epistemological certainty that passing a, a a good infrastructure bill would guarantee Trump's reelection, then that's a hard question. But you, well, you never, never would know, know that. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but I I think you would have you would have plenty of Democrats who would say, uh, David. Uh, what have you noticed over the last four years that, you know, it's unlikely the president will really s- turn from his current ways. And if you're a Democrat, you can see more judges on the Supreme Court. You can see more whatever. Come up with your long list of things that have agitated people about Donald Trump. Why would you want to um, have four more years of that? And oh, by the way, David, they would say wouldn't or couldn't they say uh, pause on infrastructure for, you know, 16, 17 months, however many months it is till the election. And then when the Democrats win, they can do infrastructure in an even better way. Isn't that the counter argument Democrats would make? Yeah, it is the counter argument they would make, which. So why do we need? I guess their argument is that day never comes. Right. Because and because actually this is a this is a thing which kind of does require bipartisan. It's a it's a it's an it's an issue where you can get a bipartisan compromise and without bipartisanship, you probably can't get it done. And so it's in a weird way, it's easier to do this with a split government than it would be with a unified government. If it was a fully democratic Congress and a democratic, even a democratic Senate, Republicans would do anything they could to prevent a democratic president and democratic Congress from getting that win. And so the Senate, because the Senate is effectively able to block, minority parties are able to block almost anything these days. Republicans would block it in, in the Senate in 16 months. And so I'm not sure you'd get. So then Democrats have to take the high road and help a Republican president have this victory because Republicans are so good at refusing to play ball and so disciplined about it that Democrats take the political hit for the good of the country. Yeah. Yeah. You you framed it in purely political terms. I would say Democrats should work to to rebuild the infrastructure of the country, which is the basis of our, you know, our thriving economy. It's the way we stay connected. It's the way we stay, you know, we stay prosperous. Democrats who who believe in that, who believe the government has a role to play in building infrastructure should support it and go ahead and do it. And if it requires working with a the most despicable, incompetent, villainous president of of our lifetimes, then so be it. Better, better to do that than not to do it at all. 
the way you're imagining this is lovely in the abstract and for sure the country needs all of this. But then when you look at the actual choices, you can try to work with this president, even though you've been burned eight million times in the past. And in that case, you would hammer out a bill that would be unpopular with your base because it would have a lot of corporate giveaways in it and privatization. And then it would probably fail in the Senate anyway, because we're talking about Lucy with the football here. And it's hard to imagine Trump really putting himself on the line for a bill unless he was thought he would accrue all the political benefit. Or you write like a nice Democratic wish list bill that spends lots of money and uses, you know, the public sector to do that. And you don't really imagine that it's ever going to pass, but you're doing it to play politics and to kind of set out a standard. Here's what we will do if we ever get back into power. Those are like two different things, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Can I... Can I take us out of the realm of hypothetical and and just kind of get back, um, just jump back on the why infrastructure is so wonderful campaign, which is that um, the other thing that I like about infrastructure is that, um, uh, however it gets put together, is that it forces at least some fleeting flicker of a moment of longer term thinking. Because, um, you know, mm-hmm. infrastructure projects take a little bit of time, but they they pay off in big ways down the road, as it were, down the road, down the runway, down the tracks. Down the broadband, um, and oh, and by the way, you would take into account climate change if oh, you were being at all sensible in your planning right. and admit that it's going to happen. But if if one of the crises of our democracy is the presentism, the the instantaneous, uh, everything is done in the second and in the moment for the immediate political gain. This is something that actually uh, benefits over time and not just for the next um, you know news cycle. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Joe Biden non-apology tour got off to a rocky start. Last month, in preparation for running for president, the former senator called Anita Hill not exactly to apologize for his behavior during the 1991 Thomas Hill hearings, but to express regret at what had happened to Hill. He then went on The View, where he did, I would say, slightly worse. When pressed, he said that he wished he could have done more to prevent the the rat fuckedness of of that those hearings back in 1991. Even though he was the committee chair, so you would think he he wasn't really an intern. He was somebody who actually could have done more. And for him to sort of say he he wished he could have done more was Tim felt weak at best. Um, but I think there's a there's there's kind of two big questions that have arisen here, Emily. One is is what is it that Biden should express or should should feel about what he did 28 years ago? That's number one. Number two is independent of that. Is this is this uh, the ghost that should continue to haunt him? Should he should he behind every open door? Should there be should there be somebody waiting to ask him about Anita Hill and the Thomas hearings? Or is it is this something that, that Democrats in particular should just like right off to the past. I think he could have done a lot to put it at rest this week, and he didn't. And I'm really with Dahlia Lithwick on this one. She wrote a great piece this week in which she was saying, look, Joe Biden, you can like express regret and empathy until the cows come home. And we don't care. We want fair processes and um, a way in which women can testify about sexual harassment and misconduct that does not leave them basically like stripped out there in the public square. And Biden did not provide that kind of process to Anita Hill, not by any any long shot. And Christine Blasey Ford just went through her own harrowing gauntlet in front of that same Senate Judiciary Committee. And so I think Dahlia is completely right. This is about changing how it works, not about like expressions mm-hmm. of regret. And Biden didn't talk about any of that. He didn't. He, and I also don't understand if you're going to come forward and express regret, why don't you fully apologize and like own what you did, which, among other things, was to prevent other witnesses who would have corroborated Hill's account from testifying. It doesn't seem to me if you're a politician and these kinds of moments come up from your past that you do just what Emily's saying and Dahlia's saying, which is, okay, this is a thing in the past. 
what is because this is just like politicians are always supposed to talk about the future. Right. So what do I do? How does this conversation become about the future and then and then reverse engineer from that? So I've I've got to talk about the future. So how in the world does this thing in the past affect the future? And that's and then what Emily just said is exactly presumably what you should say, which is we're we need to create a structure in public life, in private life. Uh, and no one cares more about this because from than me because I've been burned by this kind of experience and my own, um, uh, you know, incomplete understanding of it. Uh, and so I dedicate my da-da-da to the future of the da-da-da in which this is fully realized. Like, that just seems to me, if forget the issue, just as a kind of way you approach political issues that confront you, that's kind of automatically what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Well... Yes. Well, or I would say there's an alternative to that, though. I mean, Biden is an old, an old dude with a clearly we've discovered a kind of iffy history of of handsiness and violation of public space of women. So he he's himself is not even today a great spokesman for for how men behave towards women in public life. He also has this real deep scar on his record from how he treated Hill. He, he, his behavior was certainly not criminous or even immoral. It was like, in retrospect, it was really bad. But I don't think at the time, everyone knew that it was as bad as it was going to end up looking. But I don't know that he's going to be a credible spokesman for these issues. And so I think there's a, the other way is for him to apologize effusively to Hill, both publicly and in private, and then basically not try to talk about these issues anymore. That I don't think he should try to own these issues. I don't think he should try to claim he's going to fix these issues. I don't think he's a particularly credible spokesman around these issues, especially not when you have you have like six really excellent women running for president who who are better spokesmen on these issues, spokeswomen on these issues. I think he should just get out of this this swimming pool that he's in. No, you guys think he needs to stay in the swimming pool. Okay. No, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want him to be forever in the swimming pool, but he just didn't like sufficiently dive deep enough into the swimming pool this but, week. So maybe he has to go back one more time to extend your bad metaphor. But uh, but, but I, I guess the... It's not a bad I metaphor. Was, it's just a metaphor. Don't, don't impugn my metaphor. It became a bad one once yeah. I started I mean, extending as it. Metaphors, it was fine. As metaphors go, I think it's, it, was fine. it was fine. I just, I just wonder whether... Uh, I don't know why you can, why a candidate can't, when faced with a difficult issue, find a forward-looking way to talk about it, so that your response is at least plausible in the context of your campaign. And also, by the way, candidates who show they've learned stuff—that's kind of a thing we want to encourage in candidates anyway. Because it turns out, when you take the job, you have to learn a bunch of stuff on the job and then come up with creative solutions because you have no idea what you're going to be faced with. So it would it would echo that other thing we should see from and want to see from candidates, which is a signs of evolution. And I thought it was very interesting. Listen to Amy Klobuchar talk um, to Andrea Mitchell on Meet the Press about her reaction to the way Biden handled this. She said, well, that's up to Joe Biden. He's going to have to answer that again and again on the campaign trail, making the wish the father of the thought. But um, but then she said, my political the first letter I ever wrote to my senator was about this hearing. And so obviously it's another way for her to talk about the thing that Joe Biden just mishandled. But it also reminds you that there is a whole generation of people for whom this is a searing uh, political moment, those hearings. Biden, in whatever his better version of a response here, is not just talking to Anita Hill, but this whole generation. It is interesting, Emily, that Biden has by far the strongest support among African-Americans and African-American women of anyone running. By far. And it's... And so this issue, this issue is not, it doesn't appear to be an issue that, that is disproportionately affecting him with minority voters. Or like the people who are, who are peeved about it may be, I, I mean, I'm not sure who the people who are peeved about it are. Right. So can I just add on to your question before Emily answers, which is how many voters, how big is the bus of voters who were otherwise going to vote for Joe Biden, but who are now not going to as a result of the way he handled the Anita Hill phone call. Right. Not a very big bus. I mean, don't you think that from the point of view of a lot of, well, when I look at those African-American polling numbers, I assume that people are associating Biden with President Obama, and that gives him a lot of cred, and that has allowed him to kind of move 
beyond his record from the 80s and 90s and the 70s, which has other problematic um, features when you think about race, in particular his support for the crime bills and his opposition to busing to desegregate schools in the 70s. I think Biden's not not the person Democrats should nominate for the presidency. I think he's going to I don't think his campaign is going to go anywhere for reasons we've talked about on the show. I find it sad, though, that his record is is so strongly held against him. Here's a man who's been in public life for all these wait, many wait, years. Wait, 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 wait. Why? 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 That's such a weird because, thing to be- say. Like, you think it's the wrong parts of the record to emphasize? Like, what else would we hold against well, him? Well, I think that, that in it's, it's so much easier to hold the mistakes against somebody than the, than the accomplishments. And if you're a Democrat, mm. if you're a Democrat, there are all kinds of reasons to be concerned about Biden's candidacy. But the fact that he was on the wrong side of a few issues, you know, during the course of a really long and mostly distinguished career in public life in in the Senate, shouldn't that I, that to me shouldn't be the disqualifier. It shouldn't be that he was wrong. You know, he was wrong in the 1990s about the crime bill or he was wrong about how he handled Anita Hill. I mean, in, in a career that is that long and that complicated, there are going to be plenty of mistakes, I should hope. Like you should, you should right. wish that there are that many mistakes, and so, so it's that they, those to me are not the measure. The measure of him is where is he today, and what has he yeah. learned from them. And I guess, the, right. I guess maybe your point is he hasn't learned that for the on the Anita Hill, he hasn't learned enough. So, so maybe can he's you, failing that test. Uh, just because it's my favorite thing in the world, can you explain why you say he should have many mistakes in his uh, public record? Well, because <laughs> when you're engaged in the in the great work of the country when you were trying to get things done. You know, we're not all prophets. We're not always going to be right about how things are going to turn out. And and that's understandable, but it means that you've, you're right. trying you're to reaching. do things. And you're seeking to do things. And that that that's admirable. I think that's fair enough. I mean, I also feel like, I don't know, I've been revisiting the idea of why we were writing off Joe Biden politically. I mean, I totally take the point, John, you're right, that he's run what is it, three times for president unsuccessfully? Then again, you look at these poll numbers, you think about like the way he plays in the Midwest, the fact that like Trump seems to be worried about his union support. I don't know. Maybe we were being too quick to dismiss him. Um, well, I would, another thing I would add is you would look at the at the naturally skewed, been written a million times now, but the, the Democratic Party is not the same Democratic Party that we see in Twitter and on cable news. And Biden does well with that party that doesn't, that we don't see in the in the coverage of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, and the kind of hyper focus on uh, the more liberal members of of the Democratic family, we shouldn't have left the impression that there's no case to make for for Joe Biden. Um, but also, there's a long way to go between now and uh, you know, in the end of the, the delegate counting process. So um, his penchant for creating exciting moments that don't accrue to his favor. Uh, out on the campaign trail, there are uh, many more days to go. Emily, Can I last, just John last. wants to go last? I got nothing. Well, one other point that I think is, I think his decision to ba- to make a moral claim uh, for the presidency and to uh, go right at the incumbent um, on the on moral grounds sets up a, a well, basically for him, I think, um, and also that's not turf that Donald Trump wants to be on. I don't think. Um, a lot of times Donald well, Trump once he once Biden did that, didn't it seem surprising that the other candidates weren't doing it? Like once he did it, maybe he just did it successfully and they're worried that they can't do it successfully. But I, I thought that was really interesting. And that's part of why I got um, into the idea of revisiting his political potential here. I think that's uh, I, I was also surprised. I'm surprised that that uh, Democrats haven't done a lot of uh, different things with respect to the president. Um, but I I agree with you. I think that the we know from talking to people, Republicans and Democrats, that they feel there's they do not feel about the presidency, even those even those who don't like Democrats and who are conservatives f- feel a bruise as a result of some of the things that Donald Trump has done in office. And Charlottesville is high on the list. Um, and we should say what we mean by Charlottesville is that the president's the, the the literal words that he said, he did, in fact, denounce the bigots and white supremacists. But he also um, uh, created a moral equivalence by talking about the, the counter protesters and the, their bad behavior. Um, his 
he waited 48 hours and said, well, he wanted to make sure that he had all the facts in. He's never waited 48 seconds on on saying, for example, that a act of terrorism is the result of um, uh, Islamic extremists. So all of the weight and energy of his personal behavior was contradicted of his normal personal behavior was contradicted by his behavior in this instance. And the the compulsion of a president in these in these moments, you are required to stand up and full throatedly speak out against Nazism and white supremacy. And he said the words, but the, the momentum of his remarks were not really behind it in the way we've come to to know from him. Good last word. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. If you're feeling bruised, if you're feeling bruised like a bruised mint leaf that you might put in your in your mint julep for the Kentucky Derby, if you were bruised in that way, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Um, well, first I'll do something very um, stupid. And then uh, one, I was a little bit late to the GabFest today because I got on an elevator that somehow achieved this success. I got on the second floor. It went up and hit the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth floor. Then it came down and hit the fifth, fourth, third, second, and first floor. So I was on an elevator while it hit all floors twice, which seems to me to were be... Were people getting on and off? Or they was were it just getting on and off. And they were getting on and off. It was the most <laughs> local ride you could take on that elevator, and I took it twice because I happened to be dumb enough to get on the elevator when it went up. Though I suppose spending the time on the elevator as it goes up from floor to floor to floor was perhaps marginally more uh, enjoyable than sitting there waiting for the thing to finally come back to me on the floor that I was on. Anyway... Um, or then hearing your chatter. Right. The stairs. Right. What about the stairs? So, Do you have those in CBS? Uh, well, it's a long story. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I thought this is some kind of personal record of almost no note in my life, but nevertheless a personal record. And I remember that at one time I thought the afterlife was a time where you basically got to go back over your life and like look at the raw data behind it and notice that um, when you were just going through your day, there were all of these peculiar coincidences and odd things happening to you that you never noticed at the time, but because you now have for all eternity to go over it, um, you can sort of look at the, um, look at the data and, uh, and that life will have all of these weird patterns that you didn't even notice while you were going through them. So, um, that's what you go. Well, that's, <laughs> we're going to have the best retirement um, <laughs> ever. I don't know what it is going to consist of, but it's going to have like all these paths that you're going to travel down with such good humor into like very intense details. This is the period Continue. of the cocktail party where you're standing alone wait, is this, because everyone you, is this, has left you. Wait, this is only part of your no, chatter? No, I wanted to. You yeah, still have another chatter about the overture. There's more. I'm about sure. the beluga whale, the white beluga whale. I feel like this is David Plotz. You'd be all over it. That the the Norwegian, these Norwegian fishermen saw this beluga whale harassing their boat and they found it had a harness on it and the harness had the words equipment of St. Petersburg on it. So they thought it was a Russian beluga whale um, being used as either a spy or a weapon. And the Russians, of course, said, well, if you were using a whale to spy on you, do you think we'd really put our like name and phone number on it? On the other hand, <laughs> the Russians did and so did the United States. They engaged in and have long, for a long time have trained dolphins for military use and one thing I didn't realize is that the Soviet um, uh, program was discontinued in 1991. But in 2012, Uc Ukraine rebooted its – this is from a slate piece – rebooted its dolphin training program. <laughs> and the Russians got that back when they annexed Crimea in 2014. So you thought the annexation of Crimea was just a geopolitical disaster. No, it was also an important chapter in the unmanned undersea vehicle fight that's been going on between the United States and the Russians. Uh, and this beluga whale, which was found by itself, normally they um, travel in packs, 
could oh be a God. part of that. I can't believe you're still talking. <laughs> what are you talking could about? Could be a part of that. It was literally look, the most absurd set of sentences I have heard in a long time. Well, look, you're going to be going through your life placidly unaware of the beluga whale menace. And I'm just saying you should be a little bit more uh, nervous about the beluga whales that might. I mean, look, they, they meddled in the last election. Who knows where the beluga threat might come from? Do you think, was it possibly a beluga whale that pressed all the buttons in the elevator? <laughs> Do you think that is, could that have been what happened? I don't think so. I think it's difficult for a beluga. It doesn't really have digits to press the actual buttons. Huh. Well, th- that that is so interesting, John. I am glad. You win. I'm glad <laughs> things are going well for you at the asylum. Story about a past president with a mustache in it. Look, there are people right now who are who are thinking, how can I go have cocktails with a guy who's dishing up that kind of material? And most of them are uh, equally uh, deranged. Emily, please, please save us. What's your chatter? Oh, man. I can't believe I have to follow that. Um... <laughs> Sorry. So this is so much more prosaic and yet I think coherent, maybe. So I am it's chattering definitely more about... coherent. I haven't even heard it yet. It's a hundred percent more coherent. I'm just saying oh, man. it's Okay. Um I am chattering this week about a an opinion piece in the New York Times called Would You Let the Police Search Your Phone? It is by Rosanna Summers, a former student of mine who I love, and Vanessa K. Bones. I hope I am staying her her name right it's about such an interesting topic psychological compliance with searches like why is it that almost everyone when the cops ask like can i look in your pockets can i search your car people say yes lots and lots of people say yes and so Rosanna and Vanessa did this study in which they had people come in to the lab. They told them they were there for one reason. But then they asked them, before we begin the study, can you please unlock your phone and hand it to me? I just need to take your phone outside the room for a moment to check for some things. And it turned out that almost everyone, 97% of people handed over their phone in this scenario. This is actually like a crazy thing to do. Why would you give your phone over to some lab researcher? What was so interesting is that they act, they also asked people, a separate set of people, do you think a reasonable person would let us search your phone? And only 28% said they would just give over their phone to a stranger. So what Vanessa and Rosanna are talking about here is this gap between our perception of when people consent to searches under what circumstances, and then this sort of impulse we have to comply in the actual moment and their argument is that we underrate the rate the 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 instinct to comply in a way that makes us misunderstand um the protections that we really should have against um searches by the police anyway i really recommend it fascinating psychological study is a whale no beluga whales though A beluga whale would check with the Russians and then consider handing over his phone you, or her phone. Which they would put spy spyware on. True, true. So, yes, they would hand over their phone, but it would have spyware on it. Um, I'm just okay, saying you're still chatter. talking about the whale. So, um, Also, you just emailed yeah. us this piece about the whale. As we speak, I see your email come in. <laughs> My chatter is about um, a TV show I haven't seen about uh it's about four beluga whales crossing the country it is called uh, it's called asperger's are us it's from the duplass brothers who mm. are brother team of directors and actors uh who make really they make some great films and tv shows but they've made a, do- a six-part documentary series where they follow a four person comedy troupe of friends who all have asperger's syndrome during a 5,000 mile cross-country tour and it's on HBO. And as a as a father of a of a child with Asperger's, I'm really excited to see this. So the the previews look great, and I think um, one of the things that I have noticed about my son with Asperger's is that he is incredibly funny. Because one of the things that I think characterizes Asperger people with Asperger's is they are often very blunt and truth telling, and a lot of comedy is just sort of is is pointing out things that that are quite true, but which other people don't want to acknowledge. I actually don't know whether that's the form of comedy these the troop and the Asperger's are us practice, but we'll see. So um, take a look. See if it's good. I'm excited to watch it. And then, of course, we have listener chatter. There are a ton of, a ton this week. You outdid yourselves, dear listeners. There were a ton of fantastic chatters 
that you sent to us on Twitter at, at Slate GabFest and also emailed to us at GabFest at Slate.com. And there, the, the, the piece that I would point out is from A. Adamson at, at read to learn A. A. Adamson points us to an article by Dan Megan in The Atlantic, which is conservatives have a different definition of fair and liberals ignore it at their peril. This is an article that came, just came out this week. And Dan Megan, it's, it's just a piece about why, when you look at Elizabeth Warren's college loan forgiveness program, why it is that conservatives bristle at it, why, why some conservatives find it irritating. And it, it goes into the, the different ideas of what fairness is between liberals and conservatives generally. I mean, obviously, you know, people overlap. But it's a super interesting piece, and I recommend that you look at it. So Dan Megan, conservatives have a different definition of fair. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is our managing producer of Audio at Slate. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Audio at Slate. Alan Peng at CBS is always stalwart for John. Danielle Hewitt is the same for me here in Washington. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter at us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. Please join us at our show in New York on the afternoon of Saturday, June 8th. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that show. Hi, Slate Plus. Before we start our next topic, we want to let you know we're going to be talking about the sensitive issue of teenage suicide. And we want to make sure to say that if you're thinking in any way about suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or you can text them, texting START to their crisis text line at 741-741. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So uh, there's an amazing article that came out this week or study that came out this week. Nationwide Children's Hospital studied the monthly and annual rates of suicide among people ages 10 to 64 from 2013 to 2017. And they looked in particular at what happened to suicide rates for teenagers in the months after Netflix aired the show 13 Reasons Why. 13 Reasons Why is a... 13-part TV show. It's now done two seasons. I think there's a third season about to come out. But the first season is about a girl who has committed suicide and left 13 tapes for people. Each each tape is sort of about how that person played a contributory role in her suicide, built a whole series about it. It got, was widely, uh, uh, was very popular. It was widely discussed. It now turns out, according to the study, that there were 195 teen suicides, additional teen suicides in the nine months after this show aired that cannot be explained by the normal variation of in suicide rates. It indicates that, that this show may have contributed to perhaps as many as 200 deaths of, of, of children who wouldn't otherwise have taken their own lives. That's astonishing astonishing to me. I found that astonishing. Emily, first of all, did you find that astonishing? And then what are we to make of it? I find it astonishing. I have never watched one moment of this show. I hate this show. Because every time I have listened to teenagers talk about it, they it's like you can see pinballs spinning in their eyes. They are so taken with what I think is not exactly glamorization of suicide, but the emotional intensity. And I think... The narrator, who is a girl, um, and that's interesting, and we should talk about this because the increase in suicide is actually concentrated among boys. Um, The narrator is speaking from beyond the grave. And so I feel like the show, just with that format, makes you think that you're going to get to look back and see what happened. And I I think that's such a fantasy about suicide, right? The idea that, like, you're going to somehow have this, like, final triumph because you're going to know what all the grief you've caused or just um, what it's going to be like to have everyone keep living without you. And that, of course, is utterly false. And I think that um, portraying that in addition to the just like heavy, emotionally laden content of this show has really drawn a lot of kids in in that kind of soap operatic, but also like, um, ugh. 
like mawkish way that I remember from, you know, various shows and like books in my adolescence that I think of as super intense, but also kind of toxic. I I talked last night to a dear friend of mine who watched this in middle school a couple of years ago and just just wanted to understand how she experienced it. First of all, she her mom wouldn't let her watch it alone. She her mom watched it Mm. with her. Um, But but she. But she says that, yeah, she said it made she said she was totally not at all surprised to hear this study found this because she thought that it made suicide seem accessible yeah. and seem like reasonable. Like it seemed yes. like it made it a, a choice. Yeah, it just made it made it something that was that was available. And she found that she found that scary. I mean, but she did. She watched the whole show and she watched some of the second season, too. Well, I- available and powerful, um, which is just echoing what Emily was saying. But um, just. Uh, it, uh, I mean, so, so, but, uh, okay, but let's get to the, to the harder issue, which is to me, what is the obligation of the artist? And, and I'll posit, I will accept for the purposes of discussion that Netflix is not the artist. Netflix is the commercial exploiter of the artistry, but the responsibility of the artist when it comes to something which is, we know to be socially contagious or, or virally contagious, like is it, is the artist obliged not to write about drug use or to create art about drug use, but knowing that, that that will entice people to to consider drug use and, and some of those people will then be drawn in and, and may have their lives ruined as a result, or to do the same about drinking, or do the same about eating unhealthy foods, or showing people smoking cigarettes, like the cool, like, can you, are you not allowed to show coolness being associated with someone smoking cigarettes? Like, is, is there any, like, what, what risk do we run when we hold art to the standards of of public health. You know, I normally think it's not a good idea. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.